So we're going to continue now with the reading, which is slightly earlier than usual, um, but I think it makes sense that way, given the way the service is. So we're going to read from, from 1 John chapter 4. Um, and I think this continues the series we're having in 1 John, so this is the next part. So we're going to read 1 John 4, 1 to 6, and it's up on the screen, good. So John writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because these false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come to the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is God. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So in our service um, so far, we've been looking a lot about Jesus. Um, and we're now going to shift a bit and think about who the Holy Spirit is. Um, I'll be sharing some more thoughts on that in a bit. But we're now going to sing two more songs, um, which are largely about the Holy Spirit. Um, and as, as you sing the songs and reflect on what we've just read... Um, I pray that you'll be able to invite the Holy Spirit um, more into your heads and your hearts. Um, we've read about the spirit of truth, the spirit of falsehood. So as we welcome the Holy Spirit, let's pray that he will give us the truth about who Jesus is, and about who we are, and about who God is, um, and the truth about who he is as well. So if you brought the Apostle John to 21st century Britain, um, what would he think? Well, he'd think many things have changed, but one thing that might surprise him is just how much information we have today. Um, in John's day, they had relatively few, well, scrolls rather than books. Um, but today we have immense amounts, immense amounts of them. And if we have information unlimited on every subject. Those of you who are a bit older, older like me might remember the Encyclopedia Britannica, the sort of massive 23 volumes that some people have on their shelves. Um, I looked it up. The current edition includes 44 million words. So if you're sad and decided to read it out today, um, if you read it out every waking, if you, if you had every waking hour reading it out, it would take a year to read it. Um, if you're more modern, you, you like Wikipedia, well, you've got problems. That would take you 60 years. And then in that time, we've rewritten most of it again. Um, and that's just not secular information. Um, I, the information for today, I had a look on the internet for other sermons on the same passage. There's just one website called sermoncentral.com, and it's got just short of 700,000 sermons. Um, and the volume of information, it's the way we're bombarded with it. Um, virtually 24-7, we can get information. We can get internet, TV, radio, people telling us stuff in the street, um, what we meet people, friends telling us. And a lot of it is trying to convince us of something. It's saying, buy this, accept my version of this, um, do this, don't do this. Now, some of what we see is true, some of what we see is false, but quite a lot of it is sort of half true, um, partly true and partly false. 
So what we do, we double the information. What do we believe and what do we reject? And I think that's the main issue John is addressing in this section of his letter. He says, Dear friends, do not leave every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's how he starts, and he ends with, This is how guys the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So, um, in John's day, as I said, there wasn't so much information, so perhaps people had more time to think about it, but exactly the same problems. Um, some of the teaching was definitely true, um, some was definitely false, and some was in between. Um, and John's concern for his readers, a lot of the book, is to help them to deal with all this false teaching. Um, there seem to be some of false, false teaching in church, and some outside the church. And it seems to be the tragedy of church, but again also today, that so many Christians went astray. Um, we read stories of people who stood out in the faith and then believed some quite weird things. Um, and we get the same today, unfortunately. You get infrequent but regular stories of high-profile Christians who suddenly gone completely off the rails. Perhaps they've been overtaken by power or influence. So I think there's a few points that we can make just straight from the passage. Um, John is telling us that all of us have a responsibility to test the spirits. Um, it's not just for the, the some more educated or the, or the ministers. Um, all of us have a responsibility to think about what we take in. Um, it's, saying, it's, it's right to the whole church, not to certain, certain leaders. Um, the second speaker is labelled Christian, or superficially looks good, it doesn't mean it's good. In fact, as we'll see, the best deceptions are half-truths. The things which are obviously false, you say, oh yes, that's rubbish. But it's the things that just look, because they might be true, those are the things that take us in. The third thing is that what the world, um, and by that, John basically means everything outside the church. What the world really wants, I think, is ineffectual Christians. Um, I think they've realised that most of us have got a sufficiently solid faith, we're not going to give up on God altogether. So they, they, take, they take an easy attack. They think, okay, let's try and persuade these Christians um, to water down faith, to stop doing what they should be doing. Um, the things aren't important that are important. And, and John is writing about these false prophets. Um, they are from the world, and they therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. Um, and we don't know what these false prophets are teaching. Um, but I think it was probably trying to, trying to persuade people to water down their faith um, or to go down an easier path that's less threatened to the rest of the world. So with that in mind, we're going to look at three examples of the kind of false teaching that we might be faced with today. And then we'll come back to John's advice. And we'll start with the, the situation in John's church, we understand it. But then we'll, we'll come up with two similar ones which apply more today. So what did John's opponents believe? Well, that's actually quite difficult. John doesn't tell us. Um, and, and theologians argue about this, but we have a rough idea. Um, John's opponents were probably... Had, um, they believed they were sort of super spiritual. For them, the most important thing was the relationship between their own spirit and the Holy Spirit, or rather what they thought the Holy Spirit was. Um, and they were particularly keen on the experience of this faith. So they really like the sort of more overt gifts, tongues, prophecies, words of knowledge. That was really important. What they thought was less important was everything else, relationship with other people. Um, and there was a later called the Gnostics, um, 
They weren't quite around at this time, but these people seem to be heading that direction. Um, it comes from the Greek word knowledge. And what the Gnostics believe was it's what you know that's important, what's going in your head. So they really like mystical knowledge. They thought were kept it from God, um, beyond what was in the Bible. And they also believe that absolutely everything material, human bodies, even their own bodies, creation, the world outside, was totally evil and not worthy of notice. So you can sort of see why people might have liked this viewpoint. It meant they didn't have to face the challenges of persecution, they didn't have to think about their daily life, they did those who weren't Christian. And actually, this is half-truth. We do know that the evil world will be dealt with. We do know that spirituality is important. But we also know that the world out there is important. And that God's creation, it's just fallen, it's, it's damaged, but not totally irredeemable. We know that God is going to come and put it right, not just sweep it all away and start again. So do you get such people today? Um, to an extent, I think. I mean, there were, there were clearly some people who were very into mysticism, sort of um, spiritual things. They're often sort of more needy people outside the faith, sometimes in the fringes of the faith. But actually, if we're honest, a lot of us do have this to a milder form. So we, live, we like to live in the Christian bubble. We like to socialise with our friends who are church people, who are nice people. We like to read only Christian books and the Christian media. Um, we often try to avoid the secular news as it's too depressing. Well, it is depressing, but we know about it. And we don't like to dirty ourselves by interacting with the wider world. Again, this is a hard truth. We do need to be careful how we interact with the world, but we can't cut ourselves off from it. So this is the first example is a misunderstanding of what it means to be human. Um, our second one is, is related, but I think it's more a misunderstanding about the, what the Holy Spirit is. So the second half-truth can be summarised as follows. Christianity is just about your personal spirituality, but that has nothing to do with me. So, once again, this emphasises a personal relationship with God at the expense of all else. But what does it mean for our view of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit just becomes icing on a spiritual cake, or perhaps the all in the relation, our relationship with God. The Holy Spirit gives us a fussy glow when we feel down, he helps us when we sing our favourite songs. He sometimes does something overt. Um, so he gives us an overt gift, which is meant to be for the benefit of the church, but it makes us feel good. Um, that's a slight parody, um, but it is a temptation. Also the spirituality, which gets, gets um, parodied on TV shows. I guess you've probably seen them. Um, they're, they're called documentaries, but actually they're meant to make people laugh at the church. They go and find this sort of weird Christian cult. They go and video them. They, they film them with their arms up in the air, them falling down or whatever they're doing. But they don't actually look at what's really going to lie to those people. Um, they, just want, they just want to make people watch them and say, look at these weird Christians. So why is this a problem? Well, apart from the fact that it's, it does... Um, undermine our view of the Holy Spirit. Um, it does make Christianity very attractive, apart from the kind of people who are into this New Age stuff anyway. Um, so some people might be attracted by it, but most people think that's just weird, that's not relevant to us. Second is, it ignores most of what the, what the Spirit should be doing. Um, the Spirit in this view is all nicey-nice, he can't challenge what's going on in our lives. Um, he's under our control. He can't, he can't tell us what, what we're doing is wrong, because we don't have to ignore that. Well, it can change us, only in small, small pleasant ways, nothing too difficult. So that second view is a false view of the Holy Spirit. And that's again a temptation we can fall into. 
and it's something that undermines what we do as Christians. The third one is slightly more complicated, um, and it's the statement that Christianity is a religion of love. And lots of, lots of people out there say this. Christians are welcome for taking the time and trouble to care for people. Christians aren't really welcomed when they start speaking out on issues which we think are important. Apart from a very small list, um, you think about it on the news, there's certain issues where they'll, they'll wheel a Christian out. So if you want to talk about abortion or homosexuality, they'll find a Christian and say, okay, Christianity has something to say about this. Um, if we're talking about the economy or the environment or many other things, the ch- the people say, no, that's not your business, stay out of this. And they're going to attempt to enshrine some law at the minute. Um, there's a law going through Parliament which says charities, and that includes the church, are not allowed to campaign on political issues for a year before an election. So that means if that were to pass, then um, in about six months' time, the church would say, say, shut up, you can't talk about poverty, you can't talk about environment, you can't talk about um, housing benefit. This is all political issues. Um, it's really an attempt to sort of to muzzle the church. So the problem with this is it goes against both what Jesus taught us to do and what Jesus did himself. Now, Jesus, of course, did go around healing people, supporting people, and free people. But he also went around and pointed out the problems of the society he lived in. Um, he wasn't very popular with religious authorities because he kept telling them, you're meant to be leading us in, in society of God, and you're not doing it. You're hypocrites. Um, you're ignoring the poor. You're only looking after people who are like you. And this might not sound directly above, but helping to address the problems that cause a problem is actually more loving than just trying to pick up the pieces afterwards. Um, a more modern-day Catholic archbishop put it like this. He said, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor are hungry, they call me a communist. So, I mean, he, he was struggling in, in Central America with this. Um, that he actually wanted to improve his society for the better. He actually wanted to make it more equal, a fairer society, but he wasn't allowed to do it. He only had to pick up the pieces. So if, if we do, like the world was, if we merely serve love and we don't speak out about the situations, we're actually just acting from the viewpoint of the world. And that's really reducing Christians to those who help for its own convenience. Um, we become just another charity group um, somebody who looks after the people nobody else bother with. And that's important, but that's only half of the... Um, it gives us an anemic and ancient Jesus, and we become anemic and imposing Christians. And we're not just given this spirit of niceness, but a spirit of truth. Um, Paul wrote to Timothy the following, The spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. I think it's quite interesting that he puts those, those together, power and love together. Um, um, if we just have, have powerless love, then we're doing good, but we're not doing near as much good as we could be. Uh, or as John writes here, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And it's that spirit which enables us to discern what's going on in the world that's right and what's not going the right. So those are three um, half-truths that we're told about the world. Um, we're told that, that we're told that knowledge and spirituality is all important, but our practical things are unimportant. Um, we're told that um, the spirit is just for nice things, which shouldn't shouldn't transform our lives. And we're told that we shouldn't be trying to transform the world either, just trying to pick up the pieces. 
How does John tell us to answer this? Well, his answer comes in two parts. And the first one is this. Not all spirits and spiritual thinking comes from God. Some comes from, some comes from God, but some comes from the Antichrist. And some comes from these false prophets who have gone into the world. So John says, be cautious. So how do we know which is John's second point is we decide who the true spirits are, who the false spirits are, by a simple test. Do they, or do they not, confess that Jesus has come in the flesh? Was Jesus a man, or was Jesus some sort of spiritual force of the kind the Gnostics wanted to believe in? Jesus just a myth. And the parallel question to that is, did Jesus come just to save us spiritually, or did he come to bring in a true kingdom of righteousness and provide an example for us? Um, so we've looked a bit about, about already about how this, why this question isn't just for theologians, it's, what it's important for us. It's important that Jesus died on the cross in reality for us. So I just want to draw, draw how this applies to the half-truths we've been talking about. So if Jesus is just about saving us spiritually, and he doesn't address the political and social issues of his day, or our day, then that cuts a lot into what Jesus means by love. Jesus isn't there just to helicopter us out of the world into a new place. Jesus is there to bring love to the whole world and redeem all of it. That's what love is. Jesus came into the world and got his hands dirty. Jesus cared for people truly, so we should do this too. We should be incarnated in the world and do what Jesus did. We should be present there. So for the spirit, the question is, is the spirit really inside us or is it just on the surface? Um, is the spirit just icing on the cake? Is it just sort of giving it a warm glow? Or is the spirit deeply inside us, affecting all we do? And once again, um, it's more difficult this way, it's more challenging. The spirit tells us things about ourselves we don't want to hear, but it's ultimately rewarding what we hear. And finally, when we talk about our interaction in the world, the question is, are we um, incarnated in the world? Are we fully a part of the world? If Jesus barely touched the world, and came in spiritually, as some wanted to believe, then surely it's fine for us to withdraw it. But we know that Jesus was fully part of his world for 33 years, and particularly for these last three years. Um, he spent the whole time wandering out his, wandering out his nation, um, helping them and telling them what was what. So we too should be part of this world for however, however many decades we have on the world. So one concluding thing to think about. The world isn't always keen on us being in it. The world likes to do its own thing. It does like the light that Jesus and us want to shine in some of its grimier corners. It doesn't like us sticking our noses into it, telling us how God thinks it should behave. It doesn't want to know about that. So that's why the world wants to oppose us, or distract us, or just invite us in on its own terms. But secretly it knows we're right. And secretly it knows we know more clearly. God's already won the victory. The world won't admit it, um, but the world actually realises it in its heart of hearts. So as we face the challenges of the world, as we seek true spirits and reject the false, as we remember that Jesus was incarnated as a true man and a true God, as we remember we should be following Jesus' example, let's remember that we have won the victory. Let's celebrate that. And remember, whatever we face, however difficult it is, we're on the winning side. It's just a case of the battle taking its course. So I'm going to close, we started with, with John's words at the beginning of his gospel. I'm going to close with some more words of John from Revelation. To remind us of the world we are going to. 
So John in his vision saw the following and he writes, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, honour and glory and power for ever and ever. This is the Lamb we worship. Amen.